Scripture this morning is coming from 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. Please follow along in your Bibles, or they'll be on the screens to my left and right. That's 2 Samuel chapter 5. Verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, and I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Balprazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of this place is called Balprazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. This ends the reading of God's word. And at this time, little ones can be dismissed to the little landing. Good morning, faith family at the landing. It's wonderful to be back from Ukraine. Cole and I are grateful to God for the prayer support, the encouragement, the sending and the receiving of our trip to bear witness to the love of God to Rick Perhai, our missionary, and to the uh, pastors, students, and their families that came to the retreat that we helped to uh, put on in Lviv, Ukraine. We're thankful to our wives. We're thankful to our families who sent us. We're thankful for you as a church. We're thankful for Pastor Andrew and Paul Anderson for bringing the word of God in power the last two Sundays. And we're thankful to be back home and safe. God is so good to us. I aim by God's help to return back to Second Samuel. And today we pick up the last portion of chapter five, as Tom just read next Sunday. The elders have invited a guest preacher named Bob Entner, Pastor Bob Entner. He represents Impact Ministries. He's going to be helping us as a church as we look forward to the possibility of of raising funds to expand our facility. He's a gifted speaker and teacher of God's word, and he will be in the pulpit next Sunday. I will continue to resume Second Samuel six the Sunday after that and thereafter. So pray for Bob Entner. You'll hear more about that in email this week. And uh, pray for us as elders as we try to seek to hear God's voice and lead well this precious congregation. Let me pray once again for his help as we turn to this glorious passage and see the face of Christ in 2 Samuel 5. Open our eyes, Lord, to behold wonderful things from your law. Teach us spiritually everything here that you have for us. Let nothing be left or, or overlooked or misplaced, but poor the word of God into our hearts, cause love to rise, souls to be saved, joy to abound, passion to be released, clarity to be given. Glory to your name in all these things. 
as we respond now to Second Samuel five and this wonderful vision of you, the warrior king who wins battles on our behalf. There are battles that we bring. We confess it, Lord. Sometimes we know them and can name them. Sometimes they're so deep, so broad, so vast, so seditious, we can't even see them. We're blind to them. But you're winning battles for us left and right, before and aft, all the time. And we love and worship you as the great warrior king. We're happy to bow before you and continue worshiping in song and in prayer now over the word. For you are worthy in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Here in 2 Samuel chapter 5, David has been anointed and made public as God's king over unified Israel. David has been elevated and he has been given great authority and favor. He's been made king and he's placed in Jerusalem. And now David is going to lead a mighty battle, actually two battles. And he will win these battles by the power of God. These are massive and important battles. It's against the Philistines. The Philistines were the people who were unclean that God told Saul to kick out of Israel. But Saul failed. Remember, do you remember how the end of first Samuel ends? Saul gets decapitated. And the Philistines take over all of Israel and win and trample them resoundingly. And they take all the plunder back and they show it off as good news to their own houses of idols. In other words, they boast. They say, we Philistines defeated the Israelites and their God. It's a horrible low point in the life of Israel as a brand new nation. Now the Philistines heard that David becomes king over united Israel and they want to crush him as a small infancy kingship. They want to smash him down. They hate him and they want to destroy him and they want to do the same thing to David that they had done to Saul previously. And yet this battle doesn't go the way of the Philistines. In fact, the Philistines are trounced here. The enemies of God are wiped out here. We almost never hear anything more about the Philistines in the rest of Second Samuel. They become a non-issue after this. This is like D-Day in World War Two. It looked like the German armies were going to hold fast and win. And yet the persistence and the sacrifice of the allied forces won the day in D-Day and turned the very direction of the war, turned the very direction of world history. That's what happens here. The Philistines are trounced not once but twice. And they're trounced not merely by the skill of David or the strength or the, the crack weaponry of Israel, but by the power of God. God's the hero of Second Samuel 5, as he is of the whole Bible. There's a shadow being cast over this. Do you remember when we looked at Second Samuel 5 many weeks ago, actually months ago? You might remember or you could just glance back to the early part of the chapter and realize, oh, no, David, what are you doing? David, 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 you're such a good leader and people love you and you've 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 killed your ten thousands and and we're all for you. In fact, we're, we're happy to rally around your leadership. David, what are you doing taking all these wives? What are you doing defiling and dishonoring and disobeying the word of God by taking wives for yourself in a way that Deuteronomy says you shouldn't? Don't interpret God blessing David with victory in battle as looking the other way at his sexual sin. Don't interpret God giving favor in battle as just winking at David's sin or even approving of it. No, no. 
In this scenario, God's kindness to David in winning battles on his behalf and Israel's behalf is meant to lead David to repentance. When God is kind to me, it's not because he approves everything I am and everything I've done. Oh, he loves me the way I am. He just doesn't love the way I am. He loves you the way you are. He just doesn't love the way you are. David, 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 don't set yourself up for a horrible, horrible fall. Once you see that there's a warning embedded in David taking many wives, you you can recognize that it's the it's the violence and the civil war and the unrest that continues in Second Samuel throughout the rest of the book that's owing to all of these various sons in David's lives. It's owing to his wives. It's owing to his sin. It's owing to the complexity that this sin introduces into David's life. And that's by intention. The author intends for us to see that. You also step back and realize the kingdom of God is not safe in David's hands. Don't look to David. The kingdom of God isn't safe in his hands. It isn't safe in my hands. It isn't safe in your hands. The kingdom of God is not safe in anyone's hands, but in the one only begotten son of God, the son of David, Jesus Christ. A millennium later, Jesus Christ will come on the scene for forespoken, foreshadowed, foretold by David in Psalm two, when he said, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? That's what the Philistines are doing against him in this chapter. The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. David surely was writing that about himself, but he was foreshadowing and prophetically writing about his son, Jesus Christ. How do we know that we're to read Jesus Christ into Psalm chapter two? What gives us the warrant and permission to do so? Acts four does. The early church had gathered together as Christ had risen from the dead, ascended to the father. Peter and John were arrested for having proclaimed the gospel. And the early church gathers in a prayer meeting. And they said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father, David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And then they quote Psalm two. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. But they meant Jesus. Listen, for truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus is God's holy anointed servant sitting on his holy hill. Jesus is the one being attacked by Gentiles, Philistines in David's day, Herod, Pontius Pilate, and others attacking to kill Jesus, Judas, in the day of his death and resurrection and continually the Gentiles come against Jesus. It's one thing if you go into a, a, a UMD classroom or a UWS classroom. It's, it's one thing if you if you go on television or on radio or, or onto the Internet or Facebook and say, I believe in Christian principles I, I believe in missions and doing good for people in wartime, or I believe in being generous and compassionate. I, I believe in right and wrong. 
I believe in moral, upstanding values. That's one thing. And many will agree with you and even approve of it. But if you say, my entire life revolves around the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Would you join me in following him? Would you abandon all other gods and all other lesser causes to give yourself to the greatest cause, Jesus Christ, the righteous? You'll have few takers. You'll even have those who oppose you. David was here opposed in 2 Samuel 5. Christ himself was opposed and the church has been opposed for 2,000 years. You'll see in this very chapter that Tom just read three ways that those who are anointed as king by God, if you're trusting in Christ, you reign with him as a king sitting next to him and enjoying the, the honor and the blessing and the adoption and the union that we have with Christ. So I put us in the place of David here in this passage and I observe three things. Kings always seek the Lord to glorify him. That's number one. Number two, kings always praise the Lord to glorify him. And number three, kings always obey the Lord to glorify him. I see all three in David's life as a guide and as an invitation for us to join him. Let's look first at kings always seek the Lord to glorify him. Look at verses 17 through 19. The Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, says verse 17. All the Philistines went up to search for David, all of them. All of them. Can you imagine how much they hated David? They wanted to flatten this guy, even though he was a very small king of a very small kingdom. And the Philistines were massive at this time. It's a little bit like David and Goliath. Oh, wait a minute. It's a lot like that. You'll see. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. In Hebrew, that means valley of the giants. I told you. You see, if you're a little boy who's learned your Hebrew in the time that Second Samuel is being read and, and, and verse 18 says, now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of the Rephaim, you'd look at your buddy and say, oh, yeah, let's get this on. David's going to take on the giants and we know how that turns out for the giants. Verse 19, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. You see, David here is seeking the Lord, even though he has all kinds of reason for pride. You know, it's been my strengths that have got me in the most trouble in my Christian life. David's strengths could get him in the most trouble. But right at the moment when he knows he's going into the valley of the giants and he knows that that it's his calling by God to defeat the Philistines and remove them from the land of Israel. He knows what God intends to do. Still, look what David does. He goes to the Lord and he seeks the Lord. He rejects self-confident pride and he says to the Lord, shall I go up? And if so, will I have victory? It's David's character, it's David's pattern, it's his habit, it's his virtue. Be gracious to me, O God, David writes in Psalm 56. For man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. For many attack me proudly when I am afraid I put my trust in you. Who are the Philistines in your life? Maybe it's persons guided by unholy spirits. Maybe it's health struggles or uh, other spiritual attacks that you're in battle in. Maybe it's 
It's entire political systems. Maybe it's an actual war that you and your country are enduring because there are individuals bent on killing you or harming you or taking your land. Who are the Philistines in your life? Be like David and say, Lord, I'm going to come to you, even though I think I know the right path and I could just do it. I'm not going to follow my own strength. I'm going to bring you the glory. You're the great warrior. I'm going to ask you and follow your command. I love this about David. I love his humility, his Christ likeness, because it's just like Jesus going into the Garden of Gethsemane, being with the Lord and listening to the Lord and seeking the Lord, even though he knew what his mission was. He knew why he had taken on flesh and come to earth to die on the cross. That's the very purpose Christ came. And yet he seeks the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane and he teaches us to do the same. We'll do that forever. Revelation 715 pictures eternity future. Therefore, they are the people of God before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Where do you run when the enemies attack? Wherever you run, when the enemies attack, that's your stronghold. That's your hope. That's your God. That's your comfort and your protector. There's been many places in my life I have run when enemies attack. And I'm ashamed, but necessarily honest to say it has not always been the Lord. Where do you run when enemies attack? Are enemies attacking you right now or do they attack the church? Do they attack us in Christian Service or leadership, do they attack the body of Christ? Of course they do. Will the attacks rise? Of Surely they will. That's no surprise. We see that warned of in Scripture repeatedly. In financial or marriage or health crisis, in times of spiritual attack, when the enemies rage in, where do you run? Run to the Lord. Seek the Lord, just like David here, just like Christ. All kings of God seek the Lord to glorify him. Second, kings always praise the Lord to glorify him. Look at verses 20 and 21. And David came to Baal Perazim. Now, it wasn't named that when he came there. He gave it that name. That's part of the way he praises the Lord. And David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. Baal means Lord. Perazim means breakthrough. Lord of the breakthrough. That's the name David gives God and gives the place where he did it. And the Philistines left their idols there and David and his men carried them away. There's glory here. Watch with me. Look carefully with me. God is called Baal Perazim. I'd encourage you to add that into your vocabulary of prayer. I'm going to pray to my Lord and God, Baal Perazim. The Lord of the breakthrough. He gives breakthrough to the Philistine army. The entire Philistines came up against David and God splits them. Literally, that's what Perazim means. He splits them down the middle. He destroys their unity so that David and his Israelite army might win. It's a swift and a powerful battle. And David praises the Lord. He says it wasn't my strength or my enemy, my, my army strength. It was God and his strength who is Baal Perazim, who split the Philistine army so that we might win. 
God orders and permits in your life difficulties to come in order that he might step in and be by all perizim. He's done that for this church in our history many times. He's done that for for Kathy and me and our family many times. He's done that for you and your family as well, no doubt. Make sure your children and others know about the way God has been for you, Baal Perizim, where it seemed like there was no breakthrough and God made a way. God created a, 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 an ark that was completed just as the rain began to fall and the deeps began to give forth their water. And God made a way through the flood for Noah and his family. God split the Red Sea just when the Egyptians had finally released the people of Israel and they were escaping Pharaoh's captivity and slavery. God was Baal Perizim. He split the Red Sea and made a way. Maybe most profoundly. And here comes glory. God took on our worst enemy. Not the Pharaohs, not the Herods, not the Philistines, not the persons that you might be struggling with right now, not the person who might give you difficulty in days ahead, but your sin and my sin. Our greatest enemy and the, and the greatest enemy of death, which is the, always the wages uh, and result of sin. God took on our greatest enemy, overwhelming in its force, deeply embedded in us such that we become our own betrayer, treasonous against our own well-being by choosing sin and our own destruction. The very thing I don't want to do, that's what I do, says the one who's aware of his own self-betrayal. And he called his one holy Always obedient, never sinning, never bad attitude, never losing love, never weakening in any way. Son, Jesus. And he said, I'm going to make him sin. He became sin who knew no sin. Glory in this with me. He became sin who knew no sin in order that he might we might become the righteousness of God in him. How did he do it? By being by all He broke his son. Upon the cross. Every time the New Testament talks of Jesus death on the cross, it refers to his body as broken. Jesus took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. God blessed through the worst conceivable enemy, our sin, by the shocking, stunning glory of making his son who was without sin to become sin in order that he might break through him for we who have sinned and do not deserve it. Glory in the wonder of your salvation. Glory and delight in the wonder of this grace. Glory in the fact that he bore our griefs, Jesus did. He carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, says Isaiah, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. There is nothing sweeter than noticing in the way the kings of God glory and praise him. Baal Perizim. Let's name this place Baal Perizim. So that everybody who comes here gives glory to God who broke through and made a way. Even the subtle detail. After the first battle, 
Did you notice how the narrator tells us that the idols of the Philistines were carried away? And the chronicles who give us a report of this story say that David and his men took those idols away left by the Philistines and they burned them. They destroyed them. You see, this is a throwback to the very same thing that we began with in 1 Samuel 31, 9, where the Philistines had won and they were cheering on one another, saying, our idols, our little trinkets, our little man carved little pieces of wood, they got the, the, the victory over Yahweh. Can you imagine a more foolish understanding of reality than that this little carved idol wins the God of the universe? Absurd. And yet they left those idols so thorough was their trouncing by David and the Israelites by the hand of God that they left their idols and those idols were just taken and thrown as wood on the fire. The point is God alone is the one who saves all other idols that we might trust in fail us. They collapse. They disintegrate. They fall apart. Be warned, precious people at the landing. Trust in no idol whatsoever. Even be so bold as to say, Lord, show me what idols I might be trusting in. Show me how I might be trusting in my being an American citizen or trusting in my technology or trusting in my education or my relationships and networking or trusting in my efforts at being a good person or my moral standing before other people or even before you. What do I trust in? Is it my family? Is it my past? Is it my constant, hopeful, cheerful personality? What do I trust in? Everything we trust in outside of God himself through Jesus Christ is ultimately an idol and it will fall by the wayside and it will be destroyed just as those idols were useless to the Philistines and they were only to be burned. So also the idols that we might trust in will also be burned. David and his men believed Isaiah 43:11. I, I am the Lord and besides me, there is no savior. Psalm 62, five and six, for God alone, my soul waits in silence for my hope is in him. My only rock. He is my only rock in my salvation, my fortress, and I shall not be shaken. Trust not in economies. Trust not in human leaders. Trust not in governments or politicians or armies. Trust not in even good ideas. Trust not in yourself, but trust in God through Jesus Christ alone. David sought the Lord. God blessed that. David praised the Lord and called him Baal Perazim. And finally, God ordained that David would obey the Lord and that would glorify him. Look at verses 20 through to through 25, and the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. They're really ticked off now. They're really mad. They're revengeful and angry, and they're going to destroy David if it's the last thing they do. They're, they're, they're steeled against David and driven with hatred. Verse 23, and when David inquired of the Lord, he said, shall you shall not go up. Apparently, David said, shall I go up again? Second time. And the Lord said, you shall not go up, but go around to the rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. What's happening here? What's this sound in the balsam trees? 
Well, it wasn't hard to figure out what the interpretation meant. Based on the rest of Scripture and the wide unity of interpretation, this meant angelic presence blowing on the tops of the balsam trees, or some translations say mulberry trees. This is the angelic presence that God is going to send to enable David and his Israelite army, small in number and young as a kingship, to take on the largest, most powerful army of the day, now doubled in their hatred and anger. God says, go behind them, cut off their retreat, and I will send angels. And when you hear me, the Lord of the battle, directing my angels in the, in the breeze as it rustles the tops of the balsam trees, then you rouse yourself, rise up powerfully, David, strike down the enemy of the Philistines. In other words, obey with passion and with power. You know that in 2 Kings chapter 7, the Syrians, the ones God and his people were fighting against in that passage, saw the angelic hosts gathered around. So there's other passages, and surely you know that there's many, many examples. You can look just quickly in, in, on the Internet for uh, records and accounts of Christians, especially those in very difficult war situations or in missionary situations in which they were very vulnerable and by sheer natural human means would have died instantly. And yet they were protected because of the presence of angelic hosts. One of my favorite ones is recorded by Billy Graham, a brand new edition of his book. Angels, God's Secret Agents, has been released last year, and it includes one of my favorite accounts of this. Listen to this. Billy Graham writes one night. John G. Patton and his wife found themselves threatened by hostile natives who surrounded their mission headquarters. This is out on the island of Vanuatu. It was called the New Hebrides at the time. The Pattons thought for sure that the natives would burn down the headquarters and kill them both. They prayed throughout the night asking God to protect them from harm. The next morning they were astonished when they realized that the natives had gone away. They had no idea where or why they had left. The missionaries again prayed and thanked the Lord for saving them. About a year later, Graham still writes, the chief of the native tribe who had threatened them became a Christian. He came to visit the Patons, and when he asked them about the incident of that night of terror, the chief told the Patons that he and his men were too fearful to carry out their plans of attack. They had seen an army of giant men in shining garments with drawn swords in their hands. Surrounding the mission grounds, John G. Patton and the chief agreed that there was no explanation other than that God had sent angels to keep the missionaries from harm. That's what the sound of these balsam trees rustling is. The angelic hosts of God that he sends to those who seek his face, praise his name and desire to obey him. I'm sure that there have been times when. Kath and I have been protected and provided for by angels. I pray that for my son and his wife and daughter all the time. I pray that for you. I hope you are praying that way for your children and for your parents and for your co-workers and your roommates and your friends, even for your enemies. 
Angels are the very present messengers of God sent to bring about God's will and to encourage the faith of God's people and to establish the church wherever it's in danger. There is no doubt in my mind as I got to know many of the Ukrainians, pastors and their wives and the interpreter and other believers that we met as Cole and I traveled there, that they are fully trusting in the promises of these passages of Scripture, that they are ones like David who who ask the Lord for guidance, that they are ones like David who not only seek the Lord, but when they see his hand at work, give praise to him openly and publicly. And they are not only giving praise to him, but they desire themselves to obey him and they trust in God to help them do so. There was air raid sirens when we were there. I heard about one. Someone told of it. I didn't hear it directly. And then I heard the other one. And they simply say, don't look at your app. <laughs> they mocked them. They laughed at us because we had apps in our phones tracking where the missiles were going to go. They said, you don't need that. They just marched forward in their task. With joy. I don't think they were being arrogant or cavalier one bit. I think they were being brutally, realistically and powerfully faithful. I was inspired by it. God rules over the flight of missiles. God rules over the hard things that are coming in and out of your life and mine, too. Evil doesn't rule the world. He does. You might ask, after having looked at David in these three ways, what if I don't obey? What if I don't seek the Lord? What if I haven't always praised him? What if I'm the person who likes to be thought of as one who seeks the Lord, who likes to be thought of as one who praises the Lord, who likes to be thought of as one who obeys the Lord, but often I don't. In reality, I struggle with temptations and with the presence of idols old and new. What about me? It's worth remembering, isn't it, that the very God that we come to has taken the name through David's lips, Baal Perizim. I'm the God of the breakthrough. I don't just break through the Philistines or Herod and Pilate or those who oppose the church of Jesus Christ today in human flesh. I break through your greatest enemy, your own sin. I'm the one that's conquered your sin against me, says the Lord. I'm the one that made my son to be sin, your sin on your behalf so that I might break him and make a way for you. Praise his name. The doubt, the struggle, the unbelief, the fear, the shame, the anxiety that rises up within you when you look at a godly episode in the life of one of the Old Testament saints like David is a natural and a normal response. But let the gospel sink in deeper still. Let the truth of God's word penetrate the very depths of your soul so that deeper than your shame is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Deeper than your fear is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Deeper than anything that defines who you are is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress 
or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because of passages like that in wartime in Ukraine, churches are burgeoning. Rejoice, churches are burgeoning in Ukraine. I'm looking for evidence that they're burgeoning in Russia, too. There is some. God never promises that we won't suffer if we're like David, if we seek him and if we praise him and if we obey him. He doesn't promise we won't suffer. In fact, he promises like Christ, we will suffer. But he says our suffering is never condemnation. It's never because he's angry with us. Praise his name. It's only part of the purifying and the sanctifying and the increasing of our Christ likeness that he permits and sifts suffering before it arrives and what others mean for evil in that very moment God intends evil for good though he himself never commits sin we have a victorious God a victorious King Jesus we have a conquering King because Christ conquered on the cross rose again and ascended to the Father we too may conquer in him even if we're going through suffering even if our suffering is in some measure and in some complicated and painful way brought about by our own weakness or failings or brokenness. When Cole and I were staying in Krakow, Poland, just over the border from Ukraine, it occurred to me on our way out of Ukraine and making our way back to Duluth that while we were in Krakow, Poland, we were very nearby concentration camps that were used by the Nazis in World War II. You could even see at the train station a massive guard tower that wasn't being used as a guard tower anymore, but it was built around the 19, late 1930s and early 40s to watch over everyone who came in and out of the train station. We didn't have time to visit them, but because of the rise of anti-Semitism in the world, one can't help but remember why, where such hatred inevitably leads. Yet more hopeful still, is where true victory in Jesus Christ also leads. You know this. I hope you do. This little anecdote with which I'm going to end. But it came to my mind as I was thinking about the two concentration camps that were very nearby us as we stayed in Krakow for a day. Betsy and Corrie ten Boom protected Jewish Germans from the Nazis in their home. And for that kindness, were sent to concentration camps by the Nazis. Betsy would never leave. She would die on December 16th, 1944, at age 59. But before Betsy died, she would often read from the pages of the Bible that they held so preciously while the women were living in the women's buildings of the concentration camps. One time, Betsy read from Romans 8, the very passage I just read from, about how we are more than conquerors. To these most desperately afflicted women, Betsy would read Romans 8, we are more than conquerors. And then Corey, in her book, The Hiding Place, writes this. I would look about, as Betsy read, 
watching the light leap from face to face. More than conquerors. It's not a wish. It was a fact. And we knew it. We experienced it minute by minute. Poor, hated and hungry. We are more than conquerors. Not we shall be. We are. Life in Ravensbrook took place on two separate levels. Mutually impossible. One, the observable external life grew every day more horrible. The other, the life we lived with God grew daily better. Truth upon truth. Glory upon glory. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege of seeing your face in the account of someone like Corrie ten Boom and her sister Betsy. I thank you for seeing the face of Christ in the life of David in 2 Samuel 5. I thank you that, Christ, you are our victor. We have victory in you because we trust in you and because you rule and reign in power over the enemies of the world that oppose us and oppose you. You reign in glory. You are seated on your holy hill. You are the one Psalm 2 celebrates. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords, the ascendant and seated and reigning one. We worship and adore you. We love and delight in you. We are happy to say, Lord, cause us to be more like David here. Make us seek you. Make us to praise you. Make us to obey you. It seems to me, Lord, that in these days, 2024, there is need now, as maybe no time before, for faithful, godly, David-like churches who fix their eyes on Christ. Who want to rise up when they hear the rustling of angels' wings on the treetops and say, now is the time to strike. Don't let me shrink back, Lord. Don't let any of us shrink back. Don't let any of us merely relegate ourselves to observation and commentary, but grant us to dive in to the mighty battles that are raging around the world and around our lives. To stand for truth and for Christ and for beauty and glory and honor and love, even when the world wants to only crucify our Jesus again. Lord, we love you and we thank you for preserving believers like the Ten Booms, and many, many others during the horrors of the Holocaust. Preserve believers in Israel now and in Palestine. Preserve believers in Russia and Ukraine. Preserve believers in Nigeria and Kenya and around the world. Preserve believers even in our own nation from the temptations that drag at them and oppose them and seek to undo their faith. Oh, Lord. Don't let the love of any grow cold in this place. Continually heat us in the presence of your spirit and cause us to love and serve Christ right on through to the end. Come what may. I ask this in Jesus' precious holy name, our great victor and king. Amen. Would you stand? Let's respond.